This is Guns and Butter. It's this question of German industrialization overtaking the British, that the British had become a second-class industrial power compared to Germany and the United States, and that had consequences for the British Navy, but for the British world position. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Edward VII of Great Britain as the precursor of World War I. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, a Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. On today's program, we discuss his article, From Royal Rake to War Criminal, Edward the Encircler and the Genesis of the Triple Entente, Prelude to the Colossal Tragedy of 1914. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be with you again. July 28th of 2014 marked the 100th anniversary of World War I, also known as the Great War, also known as the War to End All Wars. After this travesty was over, nine million soldiers had lost their lives and seven million more civilians were dead. The Treaty of Versailles blamed the Great War on Germany and the stage was set for World War II. What one aspect of the causation of World War I would you say has been most neglected or obscured by academic historians and others, especially during the commemorations, lectures, and other events of this centennial year? Well, I would have to say it is the question of networks that wanted to bring this war about. And I think we know this from our own historical experience. If somebody were to ask why was there an Iraq war? The answer to that would be because there was a network of neocons in government, in uh, publishing, in the news business, uh, in academia, think tanks throughout the society, a network of neocons who wanted that war. And I submit that World War I is quite similar uh, in the sense that you have a network that strives to bring this war about. And this, I think, is the great taboo. The network in question is the network assembled personally by Edward VII of Great Britain, Uh, certainly the most successful political operative, the most active political player that the House of Hanover or Windsor has produced in the last uh, 300 years. And all of this activity starts uh, when Edward VII was Prince of Wales. Now, his mother was Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria, as you know, stayed on the throne for a very long time, right? He he, um, used to say that uh, religion talked about an eternal father, but that he seemed to have an eternal mother. She wouldn't die, right? Maybe Prince Charles today knows something about this. But uh, Edward VII had to serve as Prince of Wales for a very long time, essentially for 40 years, from about 1860 until about 1901, when Queen Victoria passed away. So for 40 years, the principal activity of Prince of Wales, later Edward VII, was to assemble a network. I would like to put that network at the center of this consideration, because I think this is 
what I have understood that most of the academic historians refuse to point to because, of course, they'll say this is a conspiracy theory, but uh, there's ample documentation uh, from the time. And it's especially the idea that he's uh, he's got 40 years of preparation and then about nine to 10 years on the throne as King of England, Emperor of India. That's 1901 to 1910. So, of course, he's dead before the war starts, before 1914. But the actual waging of World War One, the provocation and launching of World War One is carried out in just about every case by his protégés, people whose careers King Edward had uh, created. And that includes his own son, uh, George V, uh, who we now have documents saying that George V told uh, Sir Edward Grey, the British foreign minister, at the height of the crisis in July, August 1914, that Britain had to find a way to get into war. Right, So that puts George V in the uh, in the pro-war party. So in order to understand this, we'd have to go through a whole series of royal marriages, dynastic alliances, but above all, Freemasonic lodges. This is the principal way that uh, King Edward VII, including as Prince of Wales, carried out his power. He was the head of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry, the dominant one in Britain. It's also the dominant one in the United States. And he had sealed a Freemasonic alliance with the Grand Orient, dominating in France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, much of the Mediterranean, with Freemasonic lodges into Turkey and Russia and other uh, parts of the world. And this is also a network um, to, to spread irrationalism among populations. Right? It's, it's a network of occultists, um, irrationalists, mediums, clairvoyants, um, People like Madame Blavatsky or Annie Besson, the Theosophists, and then a split off from them. I'm afraid uh, there's a lot of evidence that uh, the Anthroposophs of Rudolf Steiner also fit into this uh, this pattern. But he's also got military cliques, uh, the famous round tables, right? Lord Milner and his Imperial Round Table. That's a kind of uh, kindergarten, not so much for Milner as for Edward the Seventh, and terrorism, underground um, networks that can carry out assassinations, and we'll, we'll get to a list, I hope, before too long. So this uh, network is the thing that wants, uh, it wants war. Now, how do I get this? Just briefly on the sources. Um, there is a uh, literature on this from real time. In other words, not just after World War I, although there's also that, but in particular during the run-up to the war and during the war. And these are available in a book which you can get from Progressive Press of California. And that is, this is called La France Conquise. To get much out of this, you've got to know uh, French. You've got to be able to read French at least. Uh, this is a book of about 125 pages written by Émile Flourens, F-L-O-U-R-E-N-S. And he was a French foreign minister, a former foreign minister, who wrote about how King Edward VII dominated both England and France, because that 40-year period as a royal rake, right, when he was uh, sowing his wild oats, uh, a lot of that was in Paris. A lot of that was on the French uh, Riviera. So the, the basic idea 
that Edward VII was pursuing a policy of encircling, isolating Germany and then setting up a, uh, a war against Germany is documented there. Uh, we've also got uh, a Belgian diplomat by the name of Grindel. We've got a uh, Swiss uh, religious figure, a kind of a, a Protestant uh, ideologue by the name of Bolliger. Uh, we've also got um, uh, any number of other uh, sources that are that are in the real time, right? That there is this Freemasonic uh, mobilization going on, and um, I guess we also have to say the network includes the press, the media, in particular. Uh, Lord Northcliffe, sort of the Rupert Murdoch of those days. And Lord Northcliffe had a chain of tabloids, and their constant subject was the Germans are coming, the Germans are going to invade England, they're coming in boats. That was one scenario novel that they published in parts. They're coming in submarines, another campaign. They're coming in airplanes, another one. They're coming in dirigibles and blimps, uh, and you get the idea. Right? So there's a continuous hysteria during the time uh, King Edward was on the throne in particular, that there was going to be a war between the German Empire and the British Empire. And the last thing I guess I better say is that William II, right, the Kaiser, so when I say the Kaiser, I mean the German Emperor William II, Wilhelm number two, um, says in his post-war memoirs that he has been told after the war that an important part in the preparation of the World War was played by the International Grand Orient Lodges. Well, yes, Scottish Rite, Grand Orient, and I guess we better mention also the Russian Okhrana, the Russian secret police, which also was part of this idea that there ought to be a general European war. Well, now, uh, Edward VII was actually related to many of the heads of state at that time, including yes. the Kaiser, right? He was the uncle of Europe, and he's in personal contact with his main adversaries, in particular this pathetic character, William II, the Kaiser. And his method, as Fleuron, this French foreign minister, points out especially, is manipulation, psychological profiling and manipulation, playing on the psychological complexes of William the Kaiser. The Kaiser was somebody who had a very unhappy childhood. He had an English mother one of Queen Victoria's daughters. And uh, he also had a series of uh, ear infections and other medical problems, which might have left him mentally impaired or mentally unstable. Uh, Edward VII knew how to play him like a violin. There's one report that in one meeting, when he wanted to get his goat, he simply punched him and knocked him down. Uh, interesting thing to have happen in a diplomatic uh, exchange. So yes, this is, as Fleurent points out, Edward VII is a student of human weakness and how you manipulate people. Here, let me give you an example. This is from a Freemason. This is a rival Freemason right, of a different, of a German or pro-German Freemasonry, and they're out there too. This guy's name is Athanasius, and he says, Edward VII is the greatest Freemason of modern times. And how does he operate? He says he used every means in order to realize his plans. And he got so far that he certainly would not have uh, stopped before uh, unleashing a world war if he had just a little, a little bit longer. In order to isolate Germany, he personally visited the heads of state and heads of government and tried to win them over. 
If he's not sure of how they're going to respond, he lets his friends and networks test out the terrain. When the moment has come, he starts talking about his real plans. If the other sovereigns are still not willing, then he tries to excite their greed by the possibility of conquering territory or other uh, advantages or their, their desire for glory and ambition. And if they don't uh, essentially accept his proposals, then he magically creates insurrections and nationalistic movements uh, with the help of revolutions to get a more um, pliable uh, government. You get the, it sounds like a color revolution in our own time. And, and in all of this, the lodges, the Freemasonic lodges are the best uh, help. So this guy sums up what Napoleon did with the sword, conquer Europe, Edward VII is doing it with his means of battle, which are the, the Freemasonic lodges, alliances, ententes, revolution, diplomacy, press, money, bribery, and so forth. And I think this is, this is accurate. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Edward VII of Great Britain as the precursor of World War I. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Um, what were the long-term causes of World War I? Sure. It, it's obviously the fact that Germany, by industrializing, is overtaking Britain and beginning to eclipse British power, right? Britain had been the workshop of the world, big industrial revolution, but by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, Germany is now the premier industrial power in Europe, second only to the United States on a world scale. And there is a connection that Germany was essentially going nowhere in the 1870s after the unification of Germany until Bismarck, the German leader, began noticing that the United States was developing rapidly thanks to protectionism, tariffs, dirigism, mercantilism, and he decided that he would imitate the success of the U.S. model, and at that point the, the industrialization of Germany also took off. So the general idea is that Germany is getting more and more powerful. We might compare this today to what some you know, neocons say about China. Right? China has now uh, they're almost at the point of overtaking the U.S. in general uh, production. Uh, in certainly some areas, they already have. So the idea is that, that that's a, a scary thing for a sort of a decadent imperial power like Great Britain. Um, here's how it can be summed up. Uh, this Baron Grindel that I mentioned, he says that, that uh, King Edward spent all of his time organizing entente with everybody in the world against Germany. But at the same time, Edward VII was not capable of naming a specific grievance against Germany. And it was, what is it that you don't like, right? What is it that you're so um, you know, upset about? And I guess the best answer to that comes from Edward VII himself. This is a meeting of Edward VII in uh, 1906 with the German foreign minister and, and other German officials. And Edward comments, there are no frictions between us. There is only rivalry. In other words, there's nothing Germany could do except, you know, not be a developed, highly industrialized country. There's no specific territorial concession. Some people would say, well, there was a fleet. Yes, I guess there was a fleet. 
this was very unfortunate, right? The silly Kaiser wanted to have a, a colonial empire. Uh, therefore, he thought he wanted a fleet. This was crazy. He should have focused on his land forces. That is what Bismarck said, right? Bismarck said, I'll tell you what my map of Africa is. He says, there's France here, Russia there, and Germany in the middle, and that's all I want to know about. I'm not interested in colonies. But, of course, Edward, um, Edward VII would always you know, uh, try to impress the Kaiser. Look, I have this wonderful empire. You have nothing. Ha ha. So the poor Kaiser with his inferiority complexes would then have to uh, try to get some, you know, some territory in Central Africa, which really didn't amount to anything. And since we've mentioned Bismarck already, uh, the one thing that Bismarck understood was that as long as Germany had good relations to Russia, there would be no European war. So Bismarck had something called the Reinsurance Treaty, and it meant that essentially I'm not going to sum up all the details, but it meant that uh, Russia and Germany would never go to war, no matter what. And then when Bismarck was kicked out by the Kaiser, right, the young William II kicked out the experienced, masterful Bismarck, uh, the Kaiser then said, I don't like this Russian alliance, I'm going to get rid of it. So in a, in a fit of envy and rage and stupidity, he allowed this to lapse. And then very soon you had a German... Uh, encirclement by a French-Russian alliance. Now, as long as it was just France and uh, and Russia encircling Germany, this was not so bad. But once the British added themselves to that, it became an offensive alliance designed to encircle and crush Germany. So that's that's sort of the prelude to the whole thing. Why was pre-1914 European society so vulnerable to high-level networks acting behind the scenes? The question is, why is it possible for these people to spread? Well, it helps to say, I'm joining a club, and the head of the club is the King of England and Emperor of India. And, of course, Edward VII is also the leader of British society. In other words, he's not just the monarch, but he's also the organic head of the entire oligarchy, socially speaking, right? So he's extremely powerful in that sense. Well, then you go to Paris. What do you find in Paris? It's the land of the Freemasonic lodges, the Grand Orient, left over from the French Revolution and the 19th century. Um, you go to Russia. What do you find there? Well, you find the, the monk and mystic Rasputin influencing the imperial family. And there are other, again, occultists, uh, there's a guy called Papus who comes in there from France. The French send in one of their occultists to try to influence the Russian court. But there's a there's a general atmosphere of superstition, irrationalism, um, and it's unhealthy. And then you take a look at uh, Germany, right? The famous German general staff. Well, here we find the head of it is Helmut von Moltke. This is Moltke the Younger not the one who won the Franco-Prussian War, but the one who's going to lose 1914 and really the First World War. And Moltke is in touch with Rudolf Steiner, and um, in particular, Moltke's wife, Countess Moltke, is in touch with a, um, a medium, a woman who claims to get communications from the other world, and this is Lisbeth Zeidler, and she gets communications from the other world that allegedly say, uh, dear Moltke, 
your war is futile, you're going to lose. In other words, the 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 astral plane tells uh, tells the head of the German army that he's he's going to be a loser no matter what he does. And this is this is something that leads then to a nervous breakdown by Moltke during this key time of of August September 1914. Um, there's also the problem that uh, Emperor William II is part of a court clique where uh, transvestite uh, behavior is very common, and this is a tremendous public relations problem because if this becomes known that the emperor is taking part in this, right, the rather straight-laced society outside the court would then quite possibly insist on the abdication of, of William II. And I would say probably at the center of all this, Queen Victoria, well, if you remember Dickens' novel, uh, Great Expectations. You have this Miss Havisham who's living in a house where time has stopped for decades and decades and decades and everything is falling apart. This is actually Queen Victoria because her husband, Prince Albert, died in 1861. So for 50 years after that, Queen Victoria pretended that Prince Albert was still alive or that she could talk to his spirit using a medium and her medium, her communication to the other world was uh, her Scottish uh, house servant by the name of John Brown. And I think this is the basis of the British occult bureau. And I would say then starting from that, you can see this, these tentacles that reach out under the supervision of Edward VII into the Paris lodges, the, the Russian court, uh, the German general staff, uh, and so forth. So it's, a, it's an extremely unhealthy uh, spiritual, intellectual world. And as long as people are irrational and superstitious and racist, of course, then I think Edward VII has an easy time of making them into chumps. What were the pre-war pattern of assassinations, which uh, centered on the adversaries of British Freemasonry and its allies? I'm just going to try to give you an idea of this in a in a very quick way. Um, I'm just distinguishing between sort of the decade and a half leading up to the war, and then a rash of assassinations in 1914, uh, just as the war is breaking out. Uh, and we'll talk about what, what kinds of people are getting killed to the extent that we, we can. Um, in the 15 years leading up to the war, there is an average of one head of state or head of government assassinated every year. Let me just reel these off. The president of France, Sadi Carnot, killed in 1894. The Shah of Persia, 1896. President of Uruguay, 1896. Prime Minister of Spain, 1897. President of Guatemala, 1898. Same year, Empress of Austria. President of the Dominican Republic, 1899. The King of Italy, 1900. This is an important one. This is King Humbert. He was totally devoted to Germany and Austria. He would not have accepted an alliance with Britain or France, and therefore killed to get him out of the way. And his successor, Victor Emmanuel III, was the guy who brought you Italy on the side of the British and also brought you Mussolini, because he let Mussolini take power. Then, President of the United States, William McKinley, 1901. 
This is important because McKinley was not sure he wanted to take the Philippines. The British absolutely wanted the United States to take the Philippines because they didn't want Germany to get it. And they felt if the U.S. didn't take it, Germany would get it for sure, and that would be bad for the British. And this also brings in Theodore Roosevelt. Right? Ken Burns is telling us how great Theodore Roosevelt is. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, according to the British ambassador Cecil Spring Rice, was a guy who had a mental age of six and therefore easily manipulated on you know, macho questions of honor, masculinity, vigorous living, and all that. But to continue our catalog, king and queen of Serbia killed in 1903, and they were killed by Colonel Apis, who is the guy who directed the Sarajevo assassination of June 28, 1914, that actually started the war. But hurrying on, Prime Minister of Greece, 1905, Prime Minister of Bulgaria, 1907, Prime Minister of Persia, Iran, 1907, King of Portugal, 1908, Prime Minister of Egypt, 1910, Prime Minister of Russia, 1911. This is really important. This is Stolypin, the great reformer of Russia. He was carrying out a land reform that would have avoided the Russian Revolution. And his, his uh, answer to people who wanted war was, no war, I will take part in no war, I want my reforms, and I don't want war. Therefore, blown up. Generally, the, the killers in many of these cases are anarchists, uh, so-called. Generally, Italian anarchists uh, and or Russian anarchists also play a big role. And I'm afraid, as we go through this list and we see that there's a kind of a common denominator, that the big warmongers don't seem to, to be the targets, but rather... The people who are anti-war or anti-British, I think this begins to, uh, to add up. Uh, Prime Minister of Spain, 1912. President of Mexico, 1913. King of Greece, 1913. So you get the idea. It's a time of tremendous assassinations. There's a quote from the Austrian emperor, old Franz Josef, right, who'd been on the throne since 1848, saying, they're shooting us down like sparrows. Right? Well, yeah. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Edward VII of Great Britain as the Precursor of World War I. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, but now, let's get into the heart of the matter. Just as the war is breaking out, we have a series of assassinations, assassination attempts, and also a character assassination to point to. When it comes to Russia... Right? The British need Russia, together with France, to crush Germany. Right? Those are the two continental daggers. So we've already done the assassination of Stolypin, the prime minister, the guy who said, I want my reforms, I don't want war. Interestingly, Rasputin, the so-called mad monk, was giving the Tsar of Russia the best advice one could get, which was, uh, dear father, don't plan war, stay out of war, if you go into war, Russia will be destroyed, and you personally will be destroyed. And that is exactly what happened. So there was an attempt to assassinate Rasputin in July 1914, and this was, uh, didn't kill him. He's going to be killed later by the same network. But uh, he was in the hospital for six or seven weeks. Rasputin believed that the guy who ordered the assassination was the head of the Okhrana. So that gets us back to Scottish right. Grand Orient, Okhrana. There's also a uh, Russian diplomat by the name of Hartwig who gets killed in the process. On the Austrian side, the main guy, Franz Ferdinand, right, the victim of the Sarajevo assassination, 
What's with him? Franz Ferdinand is somebody who wants to have a pro-Slavic policy. Right? This is an empire, Austria-Hungary, where the Germans and the Hungarians have full rights, but the Slavs are oppressed. So Franz Ferdinand says, we're going to have a third category for the Slavs, and that's going to mean that they'll be happy and uh, we won't have any destabilizations. And he also says, I will not allow a war with Russia. Since that's the British plan, he has to get killed. Uh, and it looks like the, the Sarajevo assassination is directly planned by the Russian Okhrana. We can talk about that in a minute. Uh, for Italy, we've already said King Humbert, who was uh, pro-German, pro-Austrian, killed in 1900. Still, in um, the summer of 1914, the supreme commander of the Italian forces is named Pollio, Alberto Pollio, P-O-L-L-I-O. And this is somebody who was also devoted to Austria and Germany, and he is apparently poisoned in a hotel in Turin, uh, which is a hotel notoriously under the control of the French intelligence service, right, the Deuxième Bureau. Now, how important this was, it is hugely important. Um, obviously, there was some question whether Italy would honor their alliance with Germany and Austria, right, the Triple Alliance. But Polio would have been fighting to honor that alliance. And the Italian contribution was going to be to send 12 divisions, one field army, through Austria into Germany, and they were going to take their place against the French, um, starting at the Swiss frontier, Going south, it was about 50 or 60 miles that was going to be covered by an Italian army. And that Italian army, of course, could have then uh, freed up enough forces for Germany to capture Paris right, in the key moment in September. So um, that's very important. And now the last one, I guess, is France. There are two cases. One is Jean Jaurès. He's a socialist, and he is the main anti-war leader of Europe. He is actively organizing an international general strike to stop World War I, uh, and he's assassinated in the open streets, 30th of July, right, just as the declarations of war are starting. So that's a very, very, very uh, suspicious one. And there's also a radical politician by the name of Caillot, who is thought to be pro-German, anti-war, and in his case, he is hit by a scandal. His uh, personal life, his, the existence of his mistress becomes a big uh, scandal. And of course, his, his wife is so upset about this correspondence being published in Le Figaro, right, the main newspaper, that she goes to Figaro and personally, with her pistol, assassinates the director of the newspaper. Now, that could not be planned, I don't think, but this means... What it means is that Caillot is out of the picture. So you look at this pattern. The people who get killed are anti-war in general or anti-British specifically or pro-German or pro-Austrian. And that seems to be a very significant uh, pattern. You say that the time around 1900 can be considered a decisive turning point. Why is that? Well, this is the story of the Boer War, right, that the British want to take over South Africa because of the diamonds and the gold and the, the fact that that's a strategic naval point, right? You're controlling all the traffic, you know, that goes around the southern 
uh, you know, the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and uh, the thing is that the British run into the Boers, right? The Boers are these Dutch colonists of the area, right? And we know they're racist, right? These are the people who have supported apartheid over time. But uh, what struck the contemporary world was that the British set up the first concentration camps of the 20th century in South Africa, and they put these Dutch Boers in there. Um, the time of the First World War is extremely permeated by racism, uh, and the Kaiser believes in racism as a fool, and uh, King Edward VII uses racism to try to appeal to, uh, to various people. Right? We'll see he appeals to Theodore Roosevelt on the basis of Anglo-Saxon racial superiority. But in the Boer War, all of that stuff about racism goes out the window because you're taking these blonde, blue-eyed Dutch Boers and putting them in concentration camps, including women and children, and killing them. And it also happens that the British Army undergoes some tremendous defeats, the so-called Black Week at the end of 1899. So at this point, everybody who's been kicked around and humiliated by the British for several hundred years says, hmm, maybe this is the time to gang up on the British and teach them a lesson and get revenge for what they've been doing to us. And the most important single element of this is Count Vita. I would point to Count Vita as one of the greatest uh, leaders. Right? Stolypin, of course, in Russia has a lot of uh, positive features. I think Vita is probably even greater because Vita comes forward with a way out. Vita, the prime minister of Russia, sends out a call to Berlin and Paris, and it says, let's form a continental block. Let's not let the British play their game of divide and conquer. Let's unite ourselves. We can abolish all of these military establishments, right? We can, we can lower our military budgets. We can increase prosperity. And the British will essentially be locked out of Europe, and, and we won't need to, uh, to worry about their you know, constant fomenting of divide and conquer uh, and so forth. So this, this is a real proposition. This literally scares the daylights out of the British because this is uh, something we've seen in history, right? The Venetians had to face this in 1509 and were almost wiped out. So the British know what this, uh, what this threat is. Unfortunately, I must say, the first, the first one to reject this clarion call is the Kaiser. And the Kaiser went to his grave repeating the story that he, the Emperor of Germany, William II, had saved the British Empire from certain destruction at the hands of the Russian-German-French continental bloc in 1901-1902, right in the midst of this Boer War crisis. And of course, the people in, um, in, in Paris also have a lot of chauvinist problems. A lot of them are you know, still you know, resentful because they were defeated in 1870 and so forth. But there were positive people, uh, in particular, uh, the French diplomat Gabriel Anoto, I guess would qualify in that regard. But the main thing is that the Kaiser thinks the, the possibility. And after this, the British then say, we have to build a land army. We've got to modernize our fleet. If the Germans build one battleship, we lay down two keels to one. Right? We're going to keep a fleet, you know, at least you know, double that of the next uh, power and, and, and so forth. And this is also when 
Queen Victoria is gone. Edward VII comes in, and he starts eagerly to get uh, allies. Certainly, the period 1900 to 1905 is a lost opportunity. And if you're keeping score, the stupid Kaiser has already blown two chances, right? One is in 1890 or thereabouts. Keep the reinsurance treaty with Russia, and you'll have no worries. Blows it. And then the Vita invitation of 1901, let's have the continental block, and he blows that too. He basically says, you guys are not on my social list, right? I prefer to hobnob with the king of England because he has more prestige. What was the Triple Entente created by Edward VII? Okay, the Triple Entente is the indispensable alliance without which you can't have World War One. Now, we just in passing, we've mentioned there's the Triple Alliance, Triple Alliance, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Italy. Italy is wooed away by, by Edward VII, as we're going to see. But that's the older of the two. And then there's this Triple Entente. Well, it starts from this. As I said, the French and the Russians had a kind of a bilateral defensive pact starting around 1892. But after this shock of the Boer War and seeing everybody boiling with hatred against London, Edward VII says, well, let's, um, let's get going. He's going to mobilize his network. So where does he have networks? In France, above all. He's probably got more networks in France than he does in, uh, in England from some points of view uh, because he's lived there so long, right, as a, as a playboy, as a bachelor. Um, so... He mobilizes the French Grand Orient, right? He makes an alliance, apparently, between the Scottish Rite and the Grand Orient, and he's going to cut them in on the gains. We'll see what gains they get. It's going to be a tragedy for the French people, right? All those dead in World War I coming directly from this. But by 1903, he's able to make a triumphant visit to France. Now, everybody said, this is impossible. These countries have been fighting for hundreds of years. And there is a, is a kind of a magical or inexplicable aspect to it, unless you remember that it's these Freemasonic lodges and similar networks that are operating behind the scenes. And some of the main French politicians, I would mention Clemenceau, people may know, right? He showed up at Versailles for the French. Clemenceau was a personal protege of Edward VII. Uh, and there were others, right? President Poincaré, in many ways, also a protege of Edward VII. So with these, you get not exactly a treaty, but uh, a kind of an entente, a, an agreement, right? A convergence of Paris and London. And before too long, they begin 1906, they start to work on a military convention and a naval convention. So there are secret military deals that underlie this, which are not told to the British House of Commons. And then we have the English-Russian question. Now, if you look at history, in the 19th century, these were the two most bitter enemies. From the end of Napoleon all the way to 1908, the British and the Russians hate each other no end. But now, of course, we've got poor Nicholas II. He's very dull and incapable of thinking strategically. Again, the mobilization goes on. And uh, we've got these um, networks that come into play. And eventually, somehow, again, magically, but through not magically at all, through these Freemasonic networks, we have the meeting of Edward VII with the, with the Tsar, right? He's, he's there, and uh, they eventually 
get this convergence. And they're, they're still working on a naval treaty up until the outbreak of the war in June, July, July 19, 1914. So with that, you've got triple entente, right? You've got France and Russia as the continental powers. They're going to take the brunt of it. And the British are off in their island with the Royal Navy, so they're going to get all the benefits, the colonies, the trade, uh, and so forth. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Edward VII of Great Britain as the precursor of World War I. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about the Sarajevo assassinations, which triggered the 1914 mobilizations and declarations of war? Sarajevo, right? What is Sarajevo? Uh, this is not a group of, uh, you know, young kids who go and, and want to kill the, uh, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, because this guy would have become emperor then within a year or two when old Franz Josef died. And as I said, Franz Ferdinand is somebody who absolutely wants to avoid war with Russia because his plan to save the Habsburg dynasty is to open to the Slavs internally. And you can't be waging war against Russia and at the same time get anywhere with the, uh, with the internal Slavic uh, groups, right? He wants to give them, give them more power. So uh, let's just look at it another way. Uh, we've mentioned that the, uh, the Tsarist Okhrana, right, the Russian secret police is part of it. Uh, these guys who are the patsies of Sarajevo come from young Bosnia. That's a kind of um, British-steered nationalist group. There's the Narodnaya Odbrana, a Serbian ultra-nationalist group, and then there's the Black Hand. And the Black Hand is this guy, Colonel Apis or Dimitrievich. And as I've said, his track record is he's already killed the king and queen of his own country, um, presumably to get people who are more, you know, more energetic, right, more warlike, more hostile to Austria-Hungary. Um, let me just we'll look at Sarajevo, though, from the British point of view. There's a very interesting writer by the name of C.H. Norman, forgotten today. And he says uh, on the Sunday of June 28th, the day of Sarajevo, he's walking in the Strand in London, going from his club to his job at a newspaper. And a, uh, a well-placed uh, British journalist comes up to him and says, do you have any news from Sarajevo? What's from Sarajevo? And Norman says, I've never heard of Sarajevo. I don't know what you're talking about. And this guy walks off muttering, I can't believe they blew it. I can't believe they didn't succeed. They've got to do it. And then within an hour or two, the news comes in. The two Austrian royals have been assassinated. And then this guy goes to a, a salon, right, a rich uh, home in, in the center of London, and the hostess is saying, oh, you know, this is going to be the trigger of the general European war. Well, that was not, not widely known at the time, but that is pretty much what happened. So uh, we could also point out that in the Austrian press during the war, this is of less convincing value, but there's also a story in the, one of the Viennese newspapers that people in St. Petersburg, the capital of Russia, we're also waiting for news on the 28th of June about some kind of an assassination in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and so forth. How did the Edward VII networks, especially the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Gray, make sure that there was no diplomatic solution to the post-Sarajevo crisis? This, I think, is, is, is equally documentable 
by uh, remarks made in real time by William II, the German emperor, and also by a Russian diplomat who's quoted by David Fromkin in his book Europe's Last uh, Summer. Here's the idea. If you're the British, you can do one of two things if you want peace. If you want peace, you're going to tell the French and the Russians, cool it, back down, no war, because if there's a war, you're on your own. We will not get involved in this war. That would be one thing. He, he never makes that threat. He never says, you know, you're on your own, anything but. The other alternative would be to tell Germany, look, Germans, if you start a war, we're going to be in it against you from the first minute, so back down. Uh, and he never did that. Instead, the posture of the British is to pretend to be a mediator, that the British are not really part of the dispute, and they're going to find a way out of it that's going to be peaceful. But these are deception postures, right? Uh, for example, George V, the king, had told a member of the German royal family, we're going to stay out of this. We're not going to get involved. And the stupid Kaiser would go around saying, the British are not coming in. I have the word of a king. That's enough for me. That's crazy. You've been duped. Um, then, as we've heard, King George V, within a couple of days, tells his, his foreign minister, Earl Grey, look, find a way to get into this war. We've got to get in. So you can see the kind of uh, duplicity right? during 1913 and 1914. And the, the basis of this, then, is the Germans, in their stupidity, are actually convinced that the British will remain neutral. And they're thunderstruck at the end of the day when Edward Gray says, guess what, we're declaring war. So this is a big uh, trap that is set. How did the Edward VII networks prevent the war from being brought to a close at the end of 1914, after the war plans of all the major powers had failed to deliver any results? And we can certainly say that by the end of 1914, the German plan failed, the French plan failed, the Russian plan failed, the Austro-Hungarian plan failed. Only the British, who really had no plan, they were, they were sitting pretty because those three countries, France, Germany, and Russia, right, that could have uh, allied against the British, are now tearing each other uh, apart. So the idea is in continental Europe at the end of 1914, there's this movie saying, Okay, soldiers, okay, generals, field marshals, we gave you your chance. Now, let's have peace, because it didn't work, did it? No, say the British, no. The British commander here is Lord Kitchener, and Lord Kitchener is a genocidal butcher, and he says, look, um, you know, we British, we want to see France and Germany and Russia bleed each other white. We want to have a population war. You guys are going to take it on the chin. This is helped along by the fact that the British expeditionary force about 110,000 men that they'd sent in at the beginning has now been practically annihilated. So the British, the British have lost their old army, but now there's nothing left to lose. So they'd rather see these other guys go on fighting. So they forced them to sign the Treaty of London, September 1914, saying nobody will have a separate peace with Germany. Okay? And uh, that, that's when they start calling themselves the Allies. Right? Up to that point, they were the Entente, now they're going to be the allies, and with that, uh, they're all locked into the suicidal course. And that's going to hold up until the Bolsheviks come along, right? Lenin and Trotsky finally say in 1917, we're now Russia, and we're not going to be bound to this uh, suicide pact. The other thing I would point to, 
Woodrow Wilson got a message from Morgan and from uh, his ambassador in Britain saying, you know, if you, uh, if you don't come in, then London will be bankrupt, Morgan will be bankrupt, the U.S. will be bankrupt, so you better come into the war on the side of the British, which is what Woodrow Wilson did, with the support, let me add, of Theodore Roosevelt, who is not such a great guy after all. Well, how can you explain the willingness of these other countries to sign the suicide pact in London and refuse Well, at the to... beginning of the war, there's this hysteria, right? There's, a, there's this notion that they're going to have, you know, there's a, there's a huge wave of war hysteria. The entire irrationalism of 30 or 40 years of European history explodes, right? And that's just, September's precisely when all of them are making these grandiose plans. Right, the Germans say we're going to uh, we're going to annex Belgium and we're going to annex this part of France and French say we're going to have Alsace-Lorraine and we're going to break Germany into parts and on and on. So they're in the manic phase, a lot of them, right? But the the ones with any brains say let's call this off, and the British are there to enforce it. They say you can't betray us. Look, you signed a treaty. You can't make a separate peace. And again, the first ones are the uh, the outcasts, Lenin and Trotsky. How did the 1919 Peace of Paris through the Treaty of Versailles with Germany set the stage for Hitler and World War II? How did the 1919 Treaty of Sevres draw the current map of the Middle East as a peace to end all peace? So the Peace of Paris, the Versailles Treaty, that was done in, what, six different parts? It's the Peace of Paris is in six different parts. There's Versailles with Germany, Sevres with Turkey, and then we have uh, Neuilly with Austria, Trianon with Hungary, and um, Saint-Germain with Austria. I think I may get those wrong. It's hard to reel those off so fast. But those are the component parts of the Peace of Paris. Obviously, with Versailles, it's a Carthaginian peace, and the, above all, the reparations. Right? The war guilt, saying Germany has all the responsibility, not, not even the main responsibility, but the only responsibility. So they, they needed that. That's obviously a fraud, but they needed that to say, therefore you pay. Uh, therefore you pay these huge reparations. The reparations were finally finished up by Germany a couple of years ago, just, just only yesterday, so to speak. So this is, this is the main stuff, right? Hitler would then agitate saying the diktat of Versailles, the war guilt clause, and the fact that we have to pay and we don't want to pay. And it also it sets the stage also for Mussolini, right? Saying we didn't get our fair share at Versailles, so we're gonna we're gonna try to take it. And then the Treaty of Sevres. This breaks up the uh, the Ottoman Empire. The Treaty of Sevres is basically what you see in crisis right now in the Middle East. In other words, the countries that are on the map now go back to Sevres. They actually go back to the Sykes-Picot agreement of Britain and France, 1916. But that is then built into the Treaty of Sevres. That's how it becomes binding. So the British get to dominate Egypt. Well, they had Egypt, but they get Palestine, they get Iraq, they get Saudi Arabia. The French get uh, Lebanon and Syria, and they want to carve up Turkey, but Ataturk uh, stops them. There's even an attempt to give the United States a piece of Turkey, which would have been absolutely insane and would have embroiled the U.S. in, in all kinds of wars for no reason. So um, you can look at this, right? Framkin has this book, A Peace to End All Peace. That gives you sort of the idea uh, that these countries, they all have the same problem, that the British and the French have promised the same territory to all kinds of different people. 
They promised them to the, uh, the Jewish settlers of Palestine, they're told they're going to get independence. The Palestinian Arabs are told, the Arab tribes of Saudi Arabia, they're told, and then the populations of these other countries are told, you're going to be independent. And in reality, none of them are going to be independent. They're all going to be under the colonial rule mandates of the, uh, of the British and the French. So uh, this powder keg you see in the Middle East, right, what ISIS is attacking is essentially the Versailles or Sevres system. Could you reiterate what were the long-term causes of World War I? Again, it's this question of German industrialization overtaking the British, that the British had become a second-class industrial power compared to Germany and the United States, and that had consequences for the British Navy, but for the British world position. And remember, Edward VII told Germany, there are no frictions between us. In other words, there are no specific issues. There's only rivalry, which is a way of saying, you're too big, you're too powerful, you're independent. And I would compare that to, uh, how do we explain the irrational hatred and hysteria of the U.S. ruling class vis-a-vis Russia? Why do they have this? Why do they hate Putin so much? It makes very little sense. What are supposedly the issues between the real bilateral issues, right? Not third country issues, but U.S.-Russian bilateral issues, there are none. There's only rivalry. And that's what, uh, that's what Baron Greinwald said. Edward VII is busily organizing entente all over the world to isolate and encircle Germany, but he's incapable of naming a single quarrel or issue that he might use to justify this. He just does it. It's the policy of these Freemasonic lodges. Right, so we're, we're talking about a rivalry for world domination. So that's... World domination, absolutely. That's the only issue, and they don't dare say that. In other words, Edward VII is not going to say, we want to dominate the world and we don't want to tolerate you. So I think that's quite similar to uh, the U.S.-Russian relationship right now. And again, very scary. What is a Freemason Lodge? What do they do? What is the point? It's, it's people who come together for mutual support in their careers, and in their projects, right? Well, the most famous example of recent years is the Italian P2 Lodge. You know that one? That's also the one that I've been able to study closest. The P2 Lodge in Rome was essentially people who supported the subordination of Italy to the United States, right? It was founded right after World War II, and it had all these people who were pro-American Italian politicians, bankers, editors, economists. I'm afraid there were church figures, right? Vatican pipes were in there, nobility, you name it. And it's to come together under the auspices that it's secret and that there is a ritual, right? There's some kind of, what can we say, satanic ritual? Uh, You know, it depends on the lodge, right? Another one, Skull and Bones. Skull and Bones is a Freemasonic lodge, absolutely clear, right? That may be the most famous one in the world. They don't call themselves that, but they are. That's a kind of Freemasonry above Freemasonry. Ron Paul is a Freemason, right? Ron Paul is a Scottish Rite Freemason, along with Jesse Helms, Trent Lott, um, you know, you name it, those guys. Those are the Confederate Freemasons. So this is basically, uh, yes, like a good old boy network, I guess you'd say. 
Yes, but it's more formalized and each lodge has a name, like Edward the Seventh was the Quatuor Coronati Lodge, the four crowned heads, which refers to ancient history. We don't need to go through it. Or we can even find this guy Norman that I mentioned, the guy who uh, is walking around in London on the day of Sarajevo, right? He says that he was invited to the founding of the British Grand Orient Lodge, um, which would have been a, a kind of a liaison lodge between London and the French Grand Orient. And of course, not just French, but Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian, right, that whole world, right? the, the world of the, of the Jacobin of, of France. So again, a lot of influential people from different walks of life who help each other. So in other words, what do you need? You need a judge, you need an editor, you need a police chief, you need a general, you need a bishop, right? So they're all in the lodge. They're all going to work together. Help you if you get in trouble. If, you, if your career needs some help, they can mobilize it. But then you've got to reciprocate. Otherwise, they kill you. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been... Edward VII of Great Britain as the Precursor of World War I. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, a Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, the Unauthorized Biography, and Just Too Weird, Bishop Romney and the Mormon Takeover of America. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at againstausterity.org. Visit his website at tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at Faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org.